Well, my name is Scott Dixon, and it's my privilege to be an elder, serve as an elder here at UBC, and it's especially uh, my privilege to share uh, with you on this Good Friday of 2023. There's a major irony in our country these days taking place on the West Coast. I don't know if you realize it, but the Silicon Valley has been designing gadgets for us with obsolescence in mind. In other words, this is hard to believe, in order to make more money, the powers that be, the engineers that are, have been designing things that purposefully run out of life. Did you hear about the iPhone battery gate a few years back? How they purposefully designed batteries that would go bad so you had to buy a new iPhone? Well, that's not the irony that I'm talking about. You see, Silicon Valley is not only creating gadgets that will die. They're also taking that money we pay them and trying to figure out how they can live forever. I just saw an article called Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever. Can billions of dollars of high-tech research succeed in making death optional? Hmm. There's another book that came out called Natural Causes, an epidemic of wellness, the certainty of dying and killing ourselves to live long. There's a lot of vocabulary being thrown around right now in this life extension movement, anti-aging, disruptors of death, <laughs> longevity entrepreneurs who, quote, see death not as a problem, but rather as something to be eliminated. Our technology, our one techno technology expert turned, I like this, anti-death advocate, how's that for a phrase, said, we need to redesign death. Instead of pursuing a good death, why die at all? Now, of course, with all that research, there's also people looking to make a buck off of us and companies in existence. For example, there's one, not on the West Coast, this one's in Boston, who will sell you a plasma infusion from an 18-year-old for a mere $8,000 a pop. Another lab has been making extensive experiments on naked mole rats because they live long as a species. Somebody said we all want the same thing. To believe we have... Oh, there's the naked mole rat. If you were that ugly, would you want to live a long life? That's all i got to ask. Or, better yet, would you sacrifice your appearance to live a long life. That may be the better way to say it, but yeah. We all want the same thing, to believe we have the power to stave off the ravages of old age. Somebody went and started researching the obit pages for these people who are called longevity experts. Dr. Ray Walford was the author of the 120-year-old diet. And then he had a famous follow-up book, Beyond the 120-Year-Old Diet. He died at 79. 
You may have heard of Jeremy Rodale. He was the guru of organic farming. He founded Prevention Magazine. Back in 1972, he was taping a talk show with Dick Cavett. And during the interview, he told Dick, I feel really good. I think I'm going to hit 100. At that point, he was 72. And at the next commercial break, he started not looking very good. He became unresponsive, and he died on the set of a heart attack. Clearer heads have started to admit the futility of trying to cheat death. They say it's as fundamental to life as birthing, eating, and sleeping. So where does that leave us? Here's one thoughtful response. You can think of death bitterly or with resignation as a tragic interruption of your life and take away every measure, to post, or take every measure you can to postpone it. Or, more realistically, this person writes, you can think of life as an interruption of an eternity of, of personal non-existence and seize it as a brief opportunity to observe and interact with the living, ever-surprising world around us. My question for us this evening on Good Friday is, are those our only two options? The futile attempt to cheat death or to just accept it as an interruption of eternity of personal non-existence. If you're joining us for the first time in a while, we've been doing a sermon series called Brand New at UBC. This series is all about the belief that Jesus changes people. We believe that because of Jesus, you don't have to do what you've always done and you because of Jesus, you don't have to be what you've always been. We've learned that Jesus changes sinful people. Jesus changes tormented people. And last week, we saw that Jesus changes religious people. This Good Friday, we're going to learn another area where Jesus changes. Jesus changes dying and desperate people. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter 23. To Luke chapter 23, you've already heard one take on the crucifixion from the gospel of Mark, and I want to look at another one from the gospel of Luke. Of course, we have three witnesses of the crucifixion, and like all witness reports, you get three different slants of the same event. And Luke gives us another perspective on the crucifixion. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That's Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers, they also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, 
This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. This evening, I'd like to give you three points about this text. We're going to look at three ideas, three actions. First, we're going to see the demands of the desperate. Second, the request of the humbled. And third, we're going to see the promise of a king. The demands of the desperate, the request of the humbled, and the promise of a king. By the way, I have a question I want to put forward that you can just kind of put in the back of your mind, and it's this. How can a soon-to-be-dead man help a dying man? How can this soon-to-be-dead man, Jesus, help a dying man? We'll get back to that. First, the demands of the desperate. Everybody in this scene seems to have an opinion about Jesus and the death of Jesus. There's an atmosphere that Luke builds as he describes of mocking. But it's even more than that. I think there's real anger here. You can just sense it, the personal venom that the leaders and the soldiers and the first criminal, that, that, that personal animosity they have with this one Jesus Christ. Did you ever stop and ask why? I mean, wh why were they so upset and ticked off? Because the guy they wanted to kill all along is now hanging on a tree, ready to breathe his last. Why are they so upset? I, I, I can imagine some traveling sandal salesman going from Alexandria up to Damascus and stumbles upon the scene here. And he's listening and watching and thinking, what's this guy done? He must be a pretty bad character. Maybe he's a murderer, a rapist, a kidnapper. And he sees a couple of bystanders also there at the scene. We'll call them Reuben and Asher. And he says, Reuben and Asher, we didn't know their name. Hey, guys, who's this Jesus fellow? And what did he do to tick everybody off? Reuben and Asher go, well, his name's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, the salesman said, I've never heard of that. And I travel all over the place. Where's Nazareth? Well, they said, it's in the sticks. It's, you go up to Galilee, go to Mount Tabor, take a left, and you're in Nazareth. So, okay, Jesus of Nazareth, what did he do? What's the charge? He must be some kind of king gone bad. Well, Asher says, I don't, I don't know about that, but... He did seem to do a lot of things that riled people up. 
salesman. Oh, he must have done some pretty bad stuff. Well, give me some examples. Well, Rubens jumps in. Well, I, I, I think it all started in a place called Cana. He turned some water into wine. Is that killable? Well, well, he also, remember the time he straightened old Gertrude's back? She'd been over for like 20 years. People were mad about that? Well, you don't understand our neighborhood. He did it on the Sabbath, and that's a big no-no around here. Hmm. Okay, what else? Well, he did give sight to a blind man. He had him wash in a pool, and he put some mud in his eye, and... He did it on the Sabbath again. Oh, oh. Asher, remember, remember the paralyzed guy? His friends let him down through the hole in the room, and, and Jesus healed him. Let me guess. They did it on the Sabbath, right? No, I really don't know when they did it, but when he did it. But I do remember on that occasion, he also forgave the guy's sins. Jesus started getting a little uppity there. Started acting a little godlike. That's getting close to blasphemy. We don't like that. Okay, okay, what else? Well, don't forget all that great. Oh, you should have been in this one. Once Jesus saw these, this guy possessed by demons, and he, he cast the demons out, but instead of just casting them out up into space or someplace, he sent them to the pigs. <laughs> and the pigs just ran off the side of the cliff. It was great. Except the farmers got mad, wasn't good for their business, and they ran Jesus out. <laughs> okay, guys, come on. Is there anything he did bad? Well, we kind of left out the big one. You know, he did raise somebody from the dead. Lazarus, he'd been dead at least four days. Did he do it on the Sabbath? No. How can you get upset then? Why would you want to kill somebody who raises people from the dead? Well, he kind of made the wrong people jealous. Why are they so mad? Why are they so angry? Have you ever asked that question? Let me show you why they're so mad. There are at least three types of people in this scene. You've got the religious leaders in verse 35. You've got the Roman soldiers in verse 36. And then you have the criminal on the cross in verse 39. Now, before I go any further, let me disabuse you of a common myth when it comes to the thieves on the cross. You see, thieves is not the right word to use. I have two reasons for this. Number one, the Greek words used to identify them are words that were used for zealots and outlaws and insurrectionists and, and revolutionaries, people that were tra trying to take down Rome and start a new government. The King James actually calls them malefactors. Hmm, They've got to be bad at malefactors. But it's not just the names that were used of these guys that makes them more than thieves. It was the fact that they were being crucified. Rome didn't crucify everyday thieves. They didn't catch them in some break-in. Rome crucified people as a statement of power. 
They crucified enemies of the state, people that were trying to take down Caesar. These guys were not ordinary thieves. They were revolutionaries. So you got three people, religious rulers, soldiers, revolutionaries. The, the religious rulers, it says verse 35, they scoffed. That, that, that means they were sneering at Jesus. They were, they were looking down their noses at Jesus. Think Downton Abbey, okay? Who are you, you lowling, to dare talk to me? That was my try in a British accent. wasn't too good, was it? And, and then you got the religious leaders were scoffing, but then, then the, the Roman soldiers, verse 36, they were mocking. They were taunting. Think playground. Na, 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 na. And then, and then you have the criminal, verse 39, who railed at Jesus. Railed. That's the strongest verb yet. That, that he was being actually verbally abusive, hitting with words. Think back alley. You want a piece of me, Jesus? Come on. These are the attitudes. You got the pompous, you got the bullies, and you got the revolutionary. But why are they mad? Why are they angry? Because Jesus, in each of those cases, called their bluff. He, he went right after their source of justification, and they took it very personally. You see, the religious leaders, the self-righteous, they justified their ability, their lies, by the ability to keep the rules. The powerful justified their lives by their strength over their foes. And the revolutionaries justified their lives by being faithful to a cause. And Jesus went after each of those idols. He offended the pompous with his honesty. He called them whitewashed tombs. He was a little boy who pointed at the religious leaders and said, they don't have any clothes of righteousness of their own. He went after the soldiers the bullies, and he confused them with his meekness. Jesus once taught, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he went after the revolutionary. He disappointed him with his refusal to take down Rome. He also taught once, Jesus did, you have heard what it was said, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. To the righteous, Jesus said, you can never be good enough. To the mighty, Jesus said, you can never be strong enough. And to the zealots, Jesus said, your revolution will never be big enough. He went right at them. He called their bluff. And they couldn't handle the truth. And they got angry. And they yelled. And they mocked. And they tortured and they eventually killed. Until we get then to our last guy in the story, criminal number two. He, he was the only guy who seemed to understand what was going on with Jesus. The religious were too busy displaying their holiness. The soldiers were having too much fun taunting the weak and the outsider and the criminal was too angry dealing with the consequences of his own choices. 
But the, the second criminal understood. And that brings us to the request of the humbled. The request of the humbled. First we saw the demands of the desperate. Now we see the request of the humbled. Talk about 11th hour conversions. This is like 11.59 and 50 seconds conversion. <laughs> you, know, you know what's interesting about this scene, which you don't see in Luke's account, but you see it in Matthew's account, is that when the two criminals were hung with Jesus at the beginning, they both were hurling insults at him. They both were joining the crowd, mocking and angry at Jesus. But not now. What happened to that second guy in those three minutes? What made him change his tune? He did a complete 180. When did the penny drop? Well, you can start to see the changes recorded by Luke in the statements he made. He had a rebuke for his fellow criminal and he had a request for Jesus. Verse 40, his rebuke. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. See, it begins with a posture, number one. How did he change, number one? He had a posture of humble repentance. It begins with a posture. And I would suggest to you, this whole episode hinges on postures attitudes that people are taking towards Jesus. Remember the angry guys? The accusations and the commands, save yourself, save us. Who gives commands? Who takes commands? Who bosses around a king? Unless you don't believe he really is a king. You see, this mixed-up posture thing started all the way back here in Genesis 3. We got the postures all confused. Instead of the creature looking to the Creator for a relationship and for a guide to life through the enticement of Satan, the lies of Satan, the creatures, Adam and Eve, started to believe that they knew more than the Creator. And that posture of looking up became switched to one of looking down. And ever since, that posture has been switched. And that's the reason our world is in such a mess. All the dysfunction in the world, all the disorder of our lives can be traced to one motto. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Who's in charge? Who's the boss of whom? That's what's taking place right now. But look at our outlier. Look at the second criminal. He doesn't make commands. He makes a request of Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He makes a confession of his own sins. He doesn't deflect his culpability with petty insults. He admits his guilt. 
His depth of perception in this scene stands in direct contrast to the blindness of all those who were taunting and mocking. This man, despite a life full of sin, comes to Jesus and seeks forgiveness in his last mortal moments. He confesses his guilt and he casts himself on Jesus' mercy and saving power. You see, this repentant criminal knows he, doesn't, he belongs, that he does belong on that cross. It's one thing to acknowledge that death is coming. It's another thing to admit that I'm the reason for my death. Hmm? Why does our sin deserve the punishment of death? That's about as big a punishment as you can give. Why does our sin deserve that? If, if the Good Friday is anything, it's a statement by God that your sin is costly. Why does it cost so much? Because punishment and its severity is always based on the person being offended. Think about this. I, I just heard a preacher talk about this. It stuck with me. He said, suppose after this service, I'm out in the foyer, and one of you decides that you don't like my face, which, I, okay, I'll give that to you. I'm not a naked mole rat, but no, okay. But, uh, and you just punch me. He just punched me in the face. What's going to happen? Well, of course, security is going to swarm, swarm, swarm and take care of you. But no, what's going to happen? I'm going to run scared because I'm a chicken, but I mean, not much maybe. But let's just say that you're having a family vacation in Washington, D.C., and you're getting a tour by your congressman who's gladly taking you to the White House. And you're walking and you're looking at the different paintings and all of a sudden, to your amazement, Joe Biden with his escort is walking down the hall towards you. And you are a Republican and you decide you don't like Joe Biden and you run and you punch him in the face. By the way, this illustration is not a political thing, okay? Just, it's just an illustration. What's going to happen if you punch Joe Biden in the face? A lot more than what would happen when you punched me. Why? Because Joe Biden matters a little more than I do. Joe Biden's status as the most powerful man in America says you don't mess with him. The severity of the punishment is based on the person and his status being offended. What do our sins do? Who do they offend? Not me and not the President of the United States. They offend all mighty God. They are us taking a posture towards God and saying, I don't care what you say. I'll do what I want. The severity of the punishment is based on the person being offended. This sinner, or this well, sinner, but this criminal on the cross came face to face with his own sin and unrighteousness. And he knew he belonged up there. Tim Keller said, without a knowledge of our extreme sin, the payment of the cross just seems trivial. 
and it doesn't electrify, and it doesn't transform. He had a posture of humbled repentance, but he also had a belief in the right person. You see, his posture has been changed with a belief. He takes the right posture because he believes the right person. He acknowledges Jesus' position, and he banks on Jesus' forgiveness. Luke does something interesting in his scene, in his recounting. He, he repeats again and again the idea of the identity of Christ. The leader said, if he's the Christ, the chosen one. The soldier says, if you're the king of the Jews, the first criminal, you're not the Christ. Even the sign above him put up there by Pilate, the king of the Jews. What is Luke trying us to get us to see? This question, is Jesus who we claim to be? Is he the chosen one? The second criminal is the only one who treated Jesus like a king. He speaks to him as one in authority. He takes on humble posture of submission and trust. What has happened in those three minutes? I'll tell you what's happened. That criminal has watched the taunts and the mocking and the anger. And he heard Jesus intercede for those taunters and mockers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that criminal, that second criminal said, what kind of man is this? This guy, he's in control of his own death. This suffering's not outside of his plan. It's part of his plan. And in words full of faith, he anticipates the restoration and the resurrection, and he wants to be included. Luke could not have painted a clearer picture of the grace of God where you see a taunter turned believer, a mocker turned worshiper, and the desperate turned hopeful. The demands of the desperate, the request of the humble. Number three, we see the promise of a king. Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the most famous verse in this whole episode. But I want you to know that we often, I think, get the emphasis wrong. What is he offering to this criminal? Yes, he's offering him an existence in paradise. But that's not the operative word. The operative word is the prepositional phrase, with me, with me. The middle of the sentence, you will be with me. There's a lot of power when you can say, I'm with him. I have a friend who, who was flying once, and he happened to have a good friend who was the captain of that jet. So after the plane had landed, my friend went up to the front and his, the captain let him into the uh, cockpit and he let him sit in the captain's chair. And I can imagine somebody saying, hey, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. And I'm with the captain. Brings a lot of access, brings a lot of power, doesn't it? Jesus is telling the thief, the criminal, from now on, you just tell them you're with me. He didn't give him, by the way, a theology exam. He didn't give him any extra religious rituals to perform, no superhuman strengths. He just said, you're with me. You're with me. There's a big irony throughout this whole scene. The religious leaders and the soldiers, 
They, they were trying to be ironic. Did you catch that? If, if you're the kings, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Come down. All the while, they didn't think he could do it. They were just being ironic. But there's an irony beneath the irony. Do you see it? You see, by not saving himself, Jesus was saving them. If only they would have the posture of that second criminal of humble repentance and belief. An atmosphere of anger and desperation turns into a scene of forgiveness and hope. As Jesus offers a dying man life everlasting, he offers a condemned man eternal pardon, and he offers a sinful man complete forgiveness. I want to end on a little bit of a down note to let you just remind you that everybody in our little story today, in our, scene, in our play, everybody's dying. Did you ever think about that? Uh, the bad thief, dying. Good thief, dying. Jesus, dying. They're all dying. Actually, everyone else in the story is dying too. Religious leaders, soldiers, even Pilate. In fact, they're all dead now, except for one. Oh, and I, need, I probably should add one more group to that dying list. Everybody in this room, dying. Last time I checked, the mortality rate for the human race is uh, 100%. And I can say with a large degree of confidence this evening, there's a lot of death in your future. And it's probably closer than you think. <laughs> that became very real to me yesterday around 6.30 a.m. I woke up and my bedroom was actually spinning like a top. I, my ceiling was just going whoop, 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 whoop. And I, it was just like total, total confusion. Total, I mean, it, and all of a sudden when that happens, nausea hits. So I, I ran to the bathroom and it was just everything was dizzy. I couldn't get my bearings. And I, I was sitting there, just not to get too blunt, but I was just sitting there hugging the toilet. But nothing was coming. And actually, what I was feeling wasn't even in my stomach. It was between my chest and my stomach. I, heard, I found out later it's called esophageal spasms. If you ever have those, they hurt. And you know what I thought about when I had that happen? I thought about my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law, in the year 2000, experienced an and i got to get the copy down of this here, um, a aortic aneurysm and killed her on the spot 62 years old she was decorating for christmas and the next moment she was gone and when i was hugging that toilet that's what i was thinking i there's not food coming up here i think there's there's something coming and it could be bad you know and i'm, I'm a preacher you know a bible teacher I, I should have had some great words of final wisdom for my wife, but you know what? It hurt too bad to think. But I thought, this could be it. It wasn't it, by the way, just not to ruin the suspense. <laughs> In case you wondered, I, I, I survived. And I, I, went, my, I, got, I got to cross off the bucket list a ride in the uh, ambulance. That wasn't that fun either. But... The doctor right away told me it wasn't an aneurysm. He said, you have, a rock, you have a head full of rocks, Scott. 
You probably already knew that. But actually, in my inner ear, there were some crystallized stuff, rocks, that had gotten discombobulated, and it made my sense of direction and everything all messed up, and it had me have vertigo. And the vertigo gave me nausea, and the nausea hit the esophagus and gave me spasms. So I survived, and that's why Pastor Jason gave me a stool up here in case it hits me again. But it didn't so far. I know you don't want to hear this, maybe, but life comes at us fast, and it's over before you know it. Old people in the room don't like to be reminded. Young people in the room don't think death applies to them. But in fact, should the Lord delay His second coming, we're all going to be dead someday. So here's my question. What kind of dying man are you? What kind of dying woman are you? Criminal number one or criminal number two? Has there been a time in your life where you've humbly repented of your sins and placed your trust and your faith in Jesus, the King and Savior of the world? Has there come a time in your life where you can look at death And with the Apostle Paul say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus changes people. He makes dying and desperate people hopeful and living people both now and for eternity. Lord, I just want to thank you for the message of Good Friday. I want to thank you for um, the way Luke put it together to challenge us and to comfort us. Lord, um, I don't know who's here, but you do. And I know there must be people here this evening, like criminal number one, angry at you bewildered at where their life is going, unsure of where that would happen when they die. And I pray that they would see the loving Savior who stayed on that cross because of His love for them to pay the penalty for that sin that we could never pay. And may those who have already made that decision to follow you be encouraged and be reminded of that love and of what matters in life, that we are with Him in all we do and all we say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.